0: anybody out there major Tom this is um podcast 177 entitled whipped cream and I'm speaking to you from a new secure location actually it's funny it's in a kind of a, a, a I'm actually in a kind of a cave almost, um, overlooking Lake Tahoe in California uh, on the property of a friend of mine, because I really needed to have a a secure kind of Conrad location uh, for the next few podcasts. But here I am, and uh, occasionally you may hear some strange noises outside this odd place. If you may remember a Twilight Zone episode called The Old Man in the Cave, well, that's a little bit the way I feel. I think um, James Coburn was in that. But um, now... um, The podcast uh, concerns a really rather serious matter um, that's received an awful lot of publicity, which I'm actually never going to talk about the details of absolutely whatsoever at all, or even name it, but it's on my mind because it's a a serious controversy within um, the institution I've served for so many years. And it draws upon... um, from me itself, some very um, uh, close-to-home responses, which I hope will actually be hopeful ones for you, and really some ones that may interpret a kind of Christianity in a way that is uh, hopeful and new and, and certainly out of my own scars. Uh, and um, I want to dedicate, therefore, this podcast, uh, number 177, to Jacob and Melina Smith, Jacob is the uh, priest in charge of the parish of Calvary and St. George's uh, in New York City, and uh, together with his uh, extraordinary partner and wife, Melina, they are doing great and um, um, marvelous work there. Their ministry is um, characterized, in my way of thinking, by humility, accepting the givens, And uh, 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 panache, courage, uh, a very keen aesthetic sense, uh, certainly uh, and especially in um, Molina's participation, and joy and even humor and a a kind of odd detachment that um, coupled with a really joyful noise. In short, they're um, called to this very challenging work of an old, old Episcopal church, and um, I personally have seen it through four or five incarnations already. And um, here they are. And it's really um, uh, with a very uh, full heart, overflowing with praise and gratitude for Jacob and Molina, that I dedicate this podcast to them. Now, there is an enormous uh, current controversy that involves um, different groups of people in high confrontation in uh a, um a situation that uh is occurring in the sacred realm and um a couple of things i've thought about it one of the first things and this could apply to a seminary it could apply to a parish it could apply to a um um, a, uh, a college could apply to any institution and certainly uh, in the religious world where I've worked almost any kind of institution that is faith related and I've seen it happen myself and directly seen it on many occasions many capital M-A-N-Y I hate to say but uh, what you find is something a kind of truism that I would say after 40 years of this um, of working with it really my whole life going back well before 40 years because I saw it before I've seen it in many many institutions and schools, good Lord. Um, the, uh, uh, in religion, institutions and the improvisation and inspiration of real spiritual religion are um, really at odds. It doesn't work. We can say all we want. We we can have all sorts of vested interests in institutions that we love and that have cherished and nourished that have nourished us. But it, it, the overall result of observation, certainly in my life, but I've spent an awful lot of time in the middle of it, in the heart of it, in some ways, um, has led me to believe that institutional process and systems um are incompatible with the improvisatory and inspirational character of real religion. I owe those phrases to Lloyd Fonville, my great friend who is so perceptive on these matters, that the teachings of Jesus Christ, for example, are very uncomfortable when they are uh, become part of a, an institution and their very nature as being improvisational and, and, and um, uh, what we might call today nimble um, with... Um, uh, w- Um, incarnational people and um, groups of people coupled with their uh, really looking to inspiration from outside themselves make it impossible for institutions to not ultimately, sort of take over, and I um, rest my case with Emil Brunner's book I've mentioned many times, *Das Missverständnis der Kirche*, the misunderstanding of the church, which is the definitive work. I'm just amazed it's not had more of a hearing a in the American scene, but it, it's completely forgotten. And it, it, everything that is happening this week, or next week, or two weeks ago in the um, meltdown of, a, of an institution that I know and love well for many, many years, and rather intimately at one point in my life, that um, if we'd only all read The Misunderstanding of the Church, which is in print, uh, uh, and really read it, and read marked, learned and inwardly really digested it, we would have seen things very, very differently. And then also the um, uh, book, and movie by that Australian novelist whose name I forget, but the movie is from 1960 something, starring uh, David Jansen, um, Anthony Quinn, and P- uh, Pope Laurence Olivier, called The Shoes of the Fisherman, about a pope who, out of years and years of imprisonment in the Soviet Gulag, comes to the most remarkable decision to shed the property of the Church of Rome. And uh, it's a, a re- so compelling and so powerful and so really. In a way strangely plausible and it ties in enormously with Pope Francis currently in his Franciscan mood, it's just extraordinary. And so I want to say that the the meaning of this institutional meltdown, which has only been repeated many 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 almost I can't what is it? I can't find the time to tell you, you know that beautiful song from 1968 by uh, the group that were originally, I think, from Worcester, Mass, called Orpheus. I don't have, I can't find the time to tell you so many, many. Put them in a book, put them in a book of a thousand pages. Well, on this front, I don't think that we could put in a book of a thousand pages. All the examples of what's happening today played out before and I think we just have to lay that burden down. I think we probably have to come to a place as Gerald Heard did. Gerald Hurd said that finally after having started, produced, directed, owned and uh, um, been at the spiritual leader of a small institution called the Tribuco Monastery near uh, near Los Angeles that is oddly literally across the street now in these days of great development from Rick Warren's Saddleback Church. Unbelievable fact. But anyway, Trebuco he gave up. He said, it can't be done. You, you can't have an institution. And he was not speaking out of a Christian or explicitly Christian thing, although he had studied theology at Gonville and Keys and was a, the son of a clergyman and the grandson of a clergyman and the brother of a clergyman in the Church of England. But he realized, uh, and he gave up. He sold his entire little beautiful place out there which had been such a place of promise for spiritual seekers for one dollar, I think, to the Vedanta Temple of Hollywood and to it's still part of the Ramakrishna order. Fascinating. Now, he came to believe, as you'll see in his story entitled The Cup and a later story entitled Chapel of Ease, that the only way you could really train the spiritual seekers for some form of illuminated leadership was in groups of not really more than six, and he inculcated this view of the total democratization of uh, spiritual uh, training and spiritual leadership models to Bill Wilson, who on the basis of Heard's own, uh, and this is corroborated by many witnesses, including Wilson himself, Uh, AA was founded with the idea that it had to be completely non-hierarchical, totally democratic in practice, not just in notion. And AA came to be as a result of Heard's insight and sort of brutalized understanding on the basis of his failure at Trabuco. Now, point one, therefore, is that institutions and the improvisational and inspirational character of the spiritual life, however you want to pin it down, are incompatible. Point two is that um, <clears throat> this, uh, what's going on in these institutions is really, <clears throat> in my way of thinking, a kind of karma. Now, I know the word karma. It's uncomfortable with me. I don't like to use the word because I it's too uh, um, politically connected with Eastern religion. And as a Christian, which I am, I'm always a little bit reluctant to use karma. I've always been reluctant to it, but karma, whatever you want to call it, it, it's a true thing. And the thing is, to quote Eric Clapton, Bobby Bland, who wrote it, and uh, the band, further on up the road, you're going to reap just what you sow. There is no getting around the fact that the chickens come home to roost, uh, that what Goes around, comes around, and you cannot adopt an action which um, uh, gets somebody else in your power without being ultimately gotten in uh, that uh, um, system of powerlessness yourself if you victimize you will become a victim um let me say how this works um interesting enough the the very canons of speaking in church law terms the very canons or shall i say interpretation of the canons that has been used in recent years to hammer the so-called traditionalist or dissident clergy on the theological right end of quote in the let's say the church that i'm a part of and and has hammered them out of the church essentially, on all sorts of interpretive grounds. A very hardball way of interpreting canons, church canons, is now being used by people on the other side to hammer people on the theological left. It's extraordinary. So it shows you it's not about ideology. The very in, the very same interpretation of canons that has been used very recently to, to to um, to to really um, harry and th- uh, uh, cast out. Um, theological conservatives is now being used in exactly the same fashion to cast out theological, quote, liberals, end of quote. So you see, it's not about ideology. It's about a system of uh, of uh, it's, it's really about karma, even right down to the personnel. The, the same personnel that were involved in one action are now involved in the other, uh, changing ideological hats. So I guess I want to say that any kind of system or business or institution that um, uses power to um, to hammer those who don't have it, a majority to hammer the minority, uh, that system always inevitably, almost in a kind of cosmic law sense, uh, turns back on those users of it, and then they are used thusly. Um, in the very, very considerable and weighty novel, which I believe is the best novel I've ever read from the 20th century, a strong statement, but I stand by it. Only Tarkington comes close. James Gould Cousins' novel, By Love Possessed, uh, near the end, the what we today would call the privileged but very human hero, Arthur Winter Jr., who's so wise and so brilliant and so kind and so generally judicious, uh, suddenly finds himself... Um, his whole life is in tatters. He's been attacked on three fronts, one of which is the most intimate possible attack, and he is, uh, his life is, in, is shattered. All his commitments and hopes and thoughts and aspirations and ideas about life are within one 24-hour period completely rendered null and void. And he says very powerfully, he said, the same, um, the same world that I have seen uh, uh, use, he means abuse, use others thusly, use others, has now uh, used me. Uh, what he really means is the same world that I, uh, the tools of which I used in my legal profession and in my profession as an advisor and as a banker, a financial person, as a mentor, the same tools that I used to to cruise, to, to navigate the world um, successfully are now being used against me successfully, and he has nothing. He, it's the story of a fine man who nonetheless is human, who is absolutely destroyed by the very things that he thought he was uh, knew knew about, uh, and that's why the book is so brilliant. It's not about privilege. It's not about class. It's not about race. It's not about religion. Uh, although it deals with all those things, it's really about um, the, the same tools that I use to navigate the world successfully have come been used against my uh, me by my quote by itself, and I am reduced to nothing. And that is why the book is so powerful. Now, so, um, the second point is that there's a karma. Now, how do you get out of karma? My third point is hopeful. How do you get out of, let's say this pattern? Uh, I've made my first point. My second point was that what's going on is a kind of, uh, further up the road, you're going to reap just what you sow. And, uh, it applies to all of us. I've been, um, as much of a, uh, an entry in this history. I have as much a page in this bitter long, um, this, um, thousand pages of, uh, of victim-victims, victim-victimizer. As as I'm, I'm, I'm one of those pages. And so I, I speak not apart from it, but I also know it's true. How do you get out of it? Well, here, I, in a way, I quote Tully and Division's great emphasis, but many others who, when they really meet it, are saying something important. Bob Dylan said it. We really have to die. The only way to finally come out from the um, cold worldly tools and means that create uh, these terrible uh, impasses is there has to be a death. And usually it's you. It's whoever's there who's ready to die. You know, he decided to die by uh, that remarkable Bishop uh, James Cleveland song. Uh, I think I have it. Maybe I'll use it one of these days here. He decided to die. Um, did you ever see the spy who came in from the cold? I mean, it, it, it's a it, it's a brilliant book, but I like it more. I love the movie, especially with Richard Burton and um, Michael Hordern and uh, Claire Bloom. I like the movie uh, as much as I like the book, but it basically is the idea that you can, in fact, come in from the cold, the cold being the theater and the game and the circus, as it's called in the book, of espionage, counter-espionage, betrayal, counter-betrayal, all in the service of what you think is something useful like democracy, and yet you come to find that all the, both different sides use the same tools and are at plague on both their houses. And so the only way you can get out of the system, you, can do, you can't fight it. You have to get out of it. You have to escape. It's an escapist answer. But as we remember from the Richard Burton hero, escape implies his own death. In other words, yes, he came in from the cold. He came in from this karmatic, bludgeoning, never-failing, one hundred and eighty, turn back, turn back, turn back, turn back, uh, and uh, he the only way to exit it is by means of his own death, which is true in life. Why shouldn't it be true in that? It's true in everything, but the tragedy is it, it takes a death. One man should die for the people, to quote one of the high priests in the gospels, and we at a, you know Christians have this very deep metaphor which actually is tied into a historical experience, a fact, a, an, an event. In which someone decided to stand in for the sins of the world. And it's very, very deep. Uh, If you want to, if you take just a minute to look at it on its own terms, what else is going to get us out of this problem? What else but a death? And in in your, my case, in the year 2014, it's usually me or you. And in the current problem that I'm talking about, that's all over the news, the New York Times and the Washington Post and all the blogs and the history of the world and the AP. A reporter and all that the only way someone in there is going to have to kind of <clears throat> kind of die to self someone's going to have to say you know i'm sorry or i really blew it or i'm willing to admit complete responsibility somebody i don't know who but somebody otherwise it'll just be a continuation of the old old let's kill them and then we'll get killed by their children now the third and final point is uh, one of hope because uh, when you die when you uh, sadly, let's uh, let's hope you can die without dying i mean i died and 2007. I, I I'm, I'll stand by that. I was um, I died in 2007, January 2007, and I've spoken about that in my uh, in my uh, in my book, and before you've heard about that, my book PCs Panopticon. But um, luckily, I didn't have to die physically. I died in every other way that I can think of personally, um, with a few little blessings still held on. Um, and I'm grateful for those beyond measure, but nevertheless, there was a death in terms of what I had thought was my life's um, uh, resolution and how it would all turn out, you know? And yet, um, uh, then there's hope, because something can happen, because once you're dead, then then you allow the Holy Spirit. You know, Simeon Zal is so good on this subject. Oh, my gosh. You allow the Holy Spirit to do something. Well, I really want to... um, While I believe that uh, Mockingbird, for example, is uh, one of the very few real chalices of hope, one of the real few uh, lights whereby um, institutional identities ride very, very light uh, in the light of the renewal that is presaged and foreshadowed and incarnated in many ways by the ministry of Mockingbird, there are others here and there. AA is one. Uh, But the only way that this will ultimately sort of find its uh, weight is by dying and then letting other um, possibilities take over. And you have to sort of allow the whole thing to live its own life. And I want to conclude by talking about Jane Austen for a second. Now, you may say, what? All of a sudden, we've suddenly lurched into Sleepless in Seattle or something like that. The world of the... Of the Jane Austen, I, I'm not a. I, I get so exercised by the uh, people who love Jane Austen because I always see so much mixed messages from them. But nevertheless, you know. By the way, did you know that uh, Kipling wrote a story about <clears throat> called the Janeites, about um, a society that's sort of a Masonic society that uh, actually came out of life in the trenches in World War One, where Jane Austen's novels are extraordinarily loved and and kind of shine a light of hope in the trenches of World War One. It's called The Janeites, and I recommend it. Hardly read it. You can get it on the internet. The Janeites by Rudyard Kipling. It's nothing new. Her work is a work of a genius. And uh, I had never read it until Mary invited me to read, and I read part of, and certainly saw the 1983 version with Anna Massey and uh, uh, Simon Farrell um, and Bernard Hepton, that I realized that something very important was going on in this uh, slightly lesser known, certainly to me, novel. I'd never read it until recently, or even known about it. And um, at the end of Mansfield Park, that's the novel, Mansfield Park, something quite unusual happens. There's a long, a lot to be said about the heroine whose name is Fanny Price, and a great deal can be said about her. But um, only at the very end does something really worthwhile happen to this very principled but rather timid person, this highly principled and really very good, but you might say she seems to lack almost fatally in self esteem at many points in the uh what we call self esteem, or sort of the ability to speak for herself. She's not like Elizabeth Bennett or um, you know, the heroine of sense and sensibility, or even some of the others in the other books. But this um she finally does come into her own because sort of everything goes Kaplui at the end of the novel. Very suddenly terrible things happen, really big things. It's a novel for sort of four hundred pages about the usual what appears to some people like me to be kind of Regency Palaver, but then, lo and behold, everything blows up and something very powerful happens. But my point is really that hope comes entirely from outside the situation and it comes on its own terms and in its own way and in its own timing and as I've said before, from the contraption, which is really my little metaphor, my visual metaphor, which I received on the 2nd of April 2013, of the fact that God is pro uns and not ante nos, sorry, I mean he's for us, pro nobis and not anti-nos, that is, against us. God is not only existent and is all things and all reality, but he is also remarkably, you might call it, kind, compassionate and graceful. And I read one paragraph, which kind of gives the resolution, but it's a very old book, 1814. And please don't say that you don't know that all Jane Austen novels end in this kind of manner. But That's not the point of the exercise. She says, writes on page 484 of this very lengthy novel, about two pages near the end, or three. She writes, I purposely abstain from dates on this occasion, that that everyone may be at liberty to fix their own, aware that the cure of inconquerable passions and the transfer of unchanging attachments must vary much as to time in different people. I only entreat everybody to believe that exactly at the time when it was quite natural that it should be so, and not a week earlier, Edmund did cease to care about Miss Crawford and became as anxious to marry Fanny as Fanny herself could desire. Now, the key point there is she leaves Jane Austen to the reader the fixing of dates. There is no timeline that is, um, uh, uh, she lays out for us. She doesn't tell us when it happens, she doesn't tell us how it happens, but she knows that it will happen at exactly, quote, at the time when it was quite natural that it should be so and not a week earlier. Well, the hope of Mockingbird, for example, or AA, for example, or Gerald Hurd's Insights, for example, or the understanding that we have to come in from the cold, that we have to come out from under all these arrangements. It's not about a new victimizer and a new victim. It's about really a situation in which there has been a Paschal Lamb. And there is, there has been one victim for all, one for all, all for one, Juma, you know, and we have to kind of ground ourselves in that, which we've already discovered because people who are in these terrible situations all die. Each person on each vexed, um, impenetrable, um, plateau uh, on either side of the great chasm that separates the the aggrieved and antagonistic uh, protagonists in the drama. They all will need in some form or another to die. It's already happening. And out of the death comes a kind of quiet where the contraption can work in the contraption's time and uh, not a week later or earlier. And that is the power of Of the hope that we have and I actually do uh, share that hope myself I hold it and to conclude a little bit of our friend Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass bittersweet Samba thank you so much greetings from Lake Tahoe